You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 3rd of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The UN de-recognises a country which doesn't exist. Animal news, for some reason. And a showdown between representatives of the world's least and most worried nations. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers, whose feigning of appendicitis was least convincing, are Laura Kramer, Tom Webb, Marcus Hippie, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. They'll discuss the day's big stories, and we'll have Henry Reese Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Laura Kramer and Tom Webb. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. Uh, Tom, you have been at a diplomatic sauna. You are still wearing the terry toweling bathrobe uh, to prove it. Uh, what has gone on? Is this, this this strange cult that the Finnish embassy are developing? Yeah, the Finnish have a sauna in their basement, and it's to encourage conversation. It's to co- encourage other embassies to sit and sauna with them. So I was invited along with with the Japanese embassy and a journalist from the Times. We saunered together in just, as you said, a dressing gown. And then afterwards, we all ate Icelandic salmon in our dressing gowns as if we'd just been to a sex party. (laughs) (laughs) Is is, is that what people do after sex parties, Tom? (laughs) I don't know. Laura, I mean, you've covered this story before. (laughs) Is that what happens? I, I have heard... That that is what happens. <laughs> Sorry, you've heard that it, what it's what happens after sex parties or after the diplomatic sauna, or, Andrew, or, or, or why not both? In another life, I worked for a documentary production company that was actually looking into doing something. Is the documentary production company in inverted commas here? No, they were looking into doing a, a doc on uh, the sex parties of the rich in, in London, the rich and bored in London, and I did perhaps attend an event. Nothing like that happened, but there was. Today's they, they show were. has taken a turn. We're like ninety seconds in, and I don't know. They were I, serving. I, I feel like we've just lost the run of this altogether. But they were serving salmon. That they was were the serving point. salmon. That's why he set me oh, up for I that. See. Okay. And I, yes, I got a certificate from the Finnish embassy. I am now a spokesperson for the Finnish sauna culture. Laura, did you get a certificate from the sex party? <laughs> Oh, Andrew, I can't talk about what I got from there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am trying to pivot here to almost literally anything else, but specifically, Tom, I am trying to pivot to a plug for the Christmas-themed edition of The Foreign Desk, in which I did interview uh, Finland's ambassador to the United Kingdom in the sauna, but I believe that I was at the Finnish ambassador's residence sauna, whereas you were actually at the Finnish embassy. That's correct. You do not get a certificate for going to someone's home. Well, no, but my point is that it sounds like basically the embassy is the sauna to which they frankly wave any old riffraff into, whereas the Finnish ambassador's residence, that's the that's what I'm sticking with. I think that's that's the that's the one with cachet. 
Well, I still had an invitation and a security clearance, so I like to think it was pretty exclusive. Okay, has anyone got any brilliant ideas about how we're going to gear change out of this into a story about the United States tooling up the Somali army? No, I'm out, Laura. This is your story. I'm going to leave this one to you. Shall I just introduce it? Go for it. Uh, Yes, because earlier this week, and if you can imagine the elegant gear change about now, the United States donated more than 60 tonnes of weapons and ammunition to the Somali National army to boost ongoing operations against the militant group Al-Shabaab and for future training of an elite infantry unit. Well, earlier Laura spoke to Dr. Stig Yala Hansen, a senior associate fellow at RUSI and the author of Horn, Sahel and Rift, Fault Lines of the African Jihad. She began by asking Dr. Hansen if there were bigger ambitions at play in the region in terms of why the US is helping Somalia, as many believe America and Russia are in a sort of proxy war competing over Africa. And allies. Definitely. Uh, and this is interesting in the larger uh, run. Uh, you know, if you, for example, look into the case of Mali, where you have done opening for the Russians, uh, there's a lot of explanations that fail to understand that one of the reasons that the Russians are there is the failure of the West, basically. It's the failure of the French intervention to deliver a final victory uh, over the jihadists. And uh, all of the conspiracy theories, the fact that France was there for almost 10 years without delivering a victory, uh, has added up to uh, anti-Western sentiment. So this is a part, you know, we shouldn't fully detach the jihadist conflicts in Africa from the larger Cold War, uh, the new Cold War between the United States and Russia. So what do you think will happen next? I think the current president did a lot of positive things, you know, uh, in one sense. I I think you have to use local clan-based militias if you're going to defeat the Shabbat. Some of the problems with the Somali army and the Somali situation is not going to be solved by weapons. I I think what the current offensive have shown is that... uh, the government has a hard time, and maybe even the United States, but the uh, government has a hard time on understanding how to coordinate with the local clan-based militias. And I think it's also shown that uh, the government fails to deliver security in Mogadishu and uh, properly secure uh, the newly reconquered areas. That means that Shebab can do as they did in the past. They can basically uh, uh, hide out in the countryside and uh, push the locals into paying taxes, providing recruits, even behind in supposedly newly liberated areas. Uh, it's substantial. United States now shown, and it showed for quite a while that it's backing the government and the government offensive. But no, this will not be a game changer. There are some crucial troubles with the current offensive that United States can only contribute to solving. Two of those crucial problems are the problems I highlighted. The third problem is that not all of the regional states are really participating in this offensive. That was Laura speaking earlier to Dr. Stig Yala Hansen, and we will bring Laura and Tom back in now. And we will talk about fictional countries, of which there is, of course, a rich litany. One thinks of Fredonia, Grand Fenwick, Ishmaelia, Lilliput, Ruritania, Sildavia, Borduria, Belgium, and Wakanda. To those may be added the United States of Kailasa, the invention of a fugitive Indian guru who trades as Nithyananda. Representatives of the U.S 
US of K attended two UN committee meetings in Geneva last month. The UN has since clarified, somewhat awkwardly, that the USK's interventions were irrelevant and tangential and that these were public meetings, which made them even more liable to be attended by posturing clowns of dubious credibility than the average UN committee. Um, I, I don't know what to think of this, uh, Laura, first of all. I do, I do quite like, I quite admire the, the moxie of the representatives of the US of K in turning up at this thing with their little nameplate in front of them and interjecting, but I don't, know, I don't really understand where they thought they were going with this. I'm not really sure, to be fair, but I thought it was a brilliant setup, like almost like an SNL skit. How did this happen? How did they even get to that platform? This, I mean, you might as well send the representative from Genovia, which, by the way, Andrew, if you're not aware, that is the country in The Princess Diaries and its sequels. I, I was not I was not aware of that. Um, I, I, there are some literary allusions among the countries I named. Does, it, does anyone know where the two Balkan countries of Sildavia and Bordeaux appear well in the Balkans surely ah, but in, in where in where are they they're fictional countries so where do they appear in fiction oh like I'm not, we need Guy Delaney on this we do yeah, yeah. They, they're in the Tintin books they, ah. they are they are two fictional Balkan republics in the Tintin books um Tom how do you think they got away with this and why do you think they're trying I know why they're trying because I've had a good look into this. They have now they they have set up the most wonderful free e visa, which is available not to everyone, just to Hindus. And I've clicked through it, and they that sounds a bit ropey, right there. Well, I know, but they didn't ask for any of my credit card details. What they want to do is something quite nice. They want to set up a group of Hindus who are going to fight global warming. They have free health care and they promote gender equality and vegetarianism. And this nation has got such a good website, which they've just launched in tandem with this UN visit. You've got press packs. You've got your own filter that you can put on your profile to say you're now a member of this new country. Um, and no one actually knows where the country is. It's off the coast of Ecuador. I can tell you that much. Uh, are, are we not concerned slightly by the fact that uh, Mr. Nithi Yananda is wanted by the law? There's, there's a slight problem that he's not been seen since 2019. Uh, and as a follower, I'm not a follower, but if I was <laughs> a, a potential recruited uh, person, I, I, uh, yeah, his, his lack of visibility is troubling. Uh, I mean, this is a thing that various uh, attention or revenue-seeking entities do from time to time, Laura, just set up a country. Uh, start printing your own passports and postage stamps, you'll always find somebody who'll go along with it. There's a farm in Western Australia uh, called Hutt River Province, which thinks it's a... I mean, I think they actually seceded technically from Australia some years ago and and no one cares. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us about the animals in that region, Andrew? Uh, Are are you already trying to pivot seamlessly (laughs) to the next item? Because before... If if you keep that pivot in mind, Laura, we will come back to it because we do need to talk about um, the bogus professor who has been turfed out of Oxford. This is Onyeka Noelie, if that is indeed how you pronounce it, but it probably doesn't matter because uh, he was an academic visitor at Oxford, Tom, and then he got rumbled. Yes, he did. He got rumbled by the student paper who were quite appalled that they had to pay £20 for an African studies event. Usually they're free. So that was the trigger moment. They looked into this spurious fellow. Uh, I say fellow because he calls himself a fellow and also a professor of both Oxford and Cambridge. But not only was this event very expensive, it was also full of misogyny and claims against your peoples, Laura, the Eastern Europeans, as nothing but poor people. 
Yeah, and, and thieves. And poor people and thieves. Uh, and during this event, he also said men should not marry women because women hold men back. So he's not a very nice fella. Uh, did, and did he have any? I, I'm not saying obviously that men are obliged to marry women, but did he have any specific ideas about who or what else men should marry if not women? Well, definitely. Which, in fairness, is the most common arrangement. Well, it was definitely not men marrying men because he also has a whole list of homophobic tweets. You surprise me. No, I know. And actually, he addressed his terrible tweets and said he was just doing it for research purposes to get people's reaction. The old Pete Townsend excuse, if you will. <laughs> uh, you see, the thing is, I, I, I'm not making excuses uh, for the unfrocked professor who, as you have uh, demonstrated, is clearly a fairly reprehensible individual. I do have an amount of an affection despite myself for the absolutely shameless bullshitter. Just the person who just piles you know, fabulizing on fabulizing, just makes stuff up. There's something awesome about watching it. I, I know there's been a lot of discussion recently, Laura, about the Republican congressman George Santos, who appears, who, who as far as we know, might not actually even be called George Santos. It might not be his real name, but apparently he does know Miley Cyrus and has somehow <laughs> been involved with Hannah Montana, which is exciting. And this is my question about this whole University of Oxford thing. If you are going to lean into this fake persona and create this whole thing, why be a professor of all the things? Like, be more interesting. Try something different. Reach for the stars. You well, know? This, this, this is where I did want to give a shout out to, I think, my favorite example of this. This was the great Ali Dia, a, a football player who who, if I recall rightly, either he called or had a friend of his call Southampton Football Club some years ago, persuaded Graham Souness, who I think was then Southampton's manager, that he was in fact the cousin of George Weyer, then probably the greatest player in the world, uh, now actually president of Liberia. And Ali Dia did actually get a game for Southampton in the actual Premier League. What does uh, that say about the team? Well, they weren't very good, but he, he came on, I think, as a substitute, um, played, what I say played, sort of ran around the paddock for about five minutes before even Graham Sooners realised that something was up and then took him off. But I, I, I do kind of admire that. And, and on football, a shout out to your uh, friend, I shouldn't say friend, Paul Nuttall, who, uh -huh. uh, who claimed to be a professional footballer during his UKIP campaign. Uh, yeah, Paul Nuttall yeah, was the leader of UKIP. I think he, yeah, he, he did acquire a reputation for just telling inane fibs that were very easily disprovable <laughs> by, by basically any hack who could be bothered making a phone call or sending an email and you just think why, why do this? But that's the thing people aren't even doing that anymore and that's how you got this fake country coming to the UN that's how you've got this professor people just aren't fact checking and people are slipping through the net Shall we pivot then to do you ever pivot from that to animal news Laura? How do you catch a hippo? Is it with a net? <laughs> Sorry is there a punchline coming about somebody called a net? No because the net that Slipping through. Ah, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm with you. Well, let's move along. <laughs> let's let's move along somewhat to animal news, which is apparently a thing. We are. is this going to be a regular segment, Tom? Uh, fortnightly, perhaps. Okay. Um, but anyway, there has, in fairness, been some animal news this week, including but not limited to a relocation of a drug baron's hippopotamuses, or to use the correct plural, hippos potamus, and a call from boffins to make more effort to protect species which are not so much rare as plain odd. Um, shall we talk, first of all, about the hippo relocation? 
Yeah, so Pablo Escobar had four hippos uh, before the arrest or shooting in, in the 90s. And these four hippos were set loose and they've bred. So there's now 72 of them. They're inbred hippos and they're in <laughs> Colombia and they they are now terrorizing the local environment. They don't have a natural enemy or a, a predator, I should say. Um, in in the, fairness, nobody gives them much trouble in Africa either. No. Uh, so they are being shipped to Italy and Mexico. How, how have they managed to sell Italy and Mexico on a, a herd of inbred hippopotamuses? Uh, it's the Colombian government. I couldn't even begin to guess. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't use a net. They used big old traps with food at the end of them. Uh, it, it is a, a remarkable uh, logistical exercise. Uh, we should also talk, Laura, about this thing the conserva- a conservationist at the Zoological Society of London has said that we should be prioritising the preservation of unusual slash odd slash weird animals uh, rather than necessarily rare ones. Yes, that's right. So there are a few examples of such unusual weird animals. There is the Madagascar blind snake a bright pink burrowing reptile that diverged from its closest living relative 65 million years ago. Okay. And that's the point, that they diverged from their closest living relatives so long in the past that if they die out, there's nothing that comes close to it. And the, the Zoological Society were a bit strange because they said, oh, if a species of rhino dies out, it's okay because there's another one. But if these monkeys or these strange, uh, whatever you've just called, the I.I. Madagascan, the, 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 the monkey that looks perpetually terrified, if that goes, it's got nothing, nothing anywhere near it. You have to go back 65 million years. And the problem is, if you look at the cute animals like the tigers that look very good on adverts, they raise a lot of money. But, you know, it doesn't matter too much if they go compared to the ultra, ultra ugly and ultra, ultra rare animals. Do either of you have a favourite weird underrated animal? Ooh, I like I like the tapir. The tapir. Yes. The, the, the sort of, which is, it's sort of hippopotamus-esque. It is, yes. Uh, but it is a mammal, I believe, with, it's got the long curly nose, also features in a Tintin book. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, Tintin has come up <laughs> once more. Uh, and actually, talking about endangered animals, I did discover uh, an interesting one uh, in Vietnam. They, in, in you discovered an animal in I Vietnam. <laughs> a, a pangolin. So they, they found that there were 42 of these that were being illegally trafficked in Vietnam, a very rare animal. But the traffickers then sold them to the Vietnam, Vietnamese restaurant industry and made $12,000, and they were turned into food. The, oh, the pangolin is, is native to Africa, I believe, West y- Africa, not necessarily Vietnam. No, that, it, it's been trafficked through yeah. Vietnam, yes. No, there, it is a whole thing about preserving the pangolin, yeah. a strange little dinosaur-y looking thing. Laura, it's cute. It is cute. Laura, do you, do you have a particular favourite? I have. I just love animals. Uh, <laughs> just generally. Yeah, I just love animals. I, I really like uh, the sea cow, also known as the manatee. I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of manatees. And recently I've gone into a deep dive of, of animals in Australia, thanks to Andrew Muller, who will sometimes randomly sit next to me <laughs> and mention little animals I should look up. And it's just become an absolute joy. Although I do have to say I'm a little bit ashamed. Um, I did believe the drop bear. 
uh, fallacy, speaking of fake news. I mean, you would not be the first American who has been sold on the drop bear. I should explain to our international listeners, this is a, uh, a legend with which Australians enjoy terrorising foreign visitors. The idea is that it is a, a predatory <laughs> subspecies of the koala. Uh, occasionally, in some of the more lurid tellings, equipped with claws and sabre teeth, uh, which will pounce from overhanging eucalyptus branches. I, I have been told it is a tale particularly beloved, Laura, of Australian soldiers doing joint exercises with Americans uh, who, once out in the Australian bush, can apparently be persuaded to spend quite a lot of those exercises looking anxiously upwards. <laughs> But actually, I misunderstood. You people ever win any wars, frankly? (laughs) Yeah, I misunderstood it completely because I always thought it was that koalas got so high on the eucalyptus or whatever they eat that they just drop out, and I thought that's what that meant—that they can kill you by dropping out. I mean, it it would hurt if a koala fell from a great height and landed on your head. They are quite chunky animals, and I have seen them in the wild as recently as a couple of months ago. And it is weird because they do climb up a long way and wedge themselves in what seems some extremely uh, precarious, unlikely, and frankly, uncomfortable positions. But there is, as far as I know, not actually a lot of record of them overbalancing. For someone who didn't want to do animal news, Andrew, yeah. you seem to be really <laughs> I, 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 into I mean, I, I think it should be a regular thing. Tom, can, can you commission some sort of, like, fanfare or, or theme? Yeah, we're going to do it. it. It could have lots of no- animal noises in yeah. it. Yep, perfect. Uh, well, that's something for our listeners to look forward to. Uh, Tom Webb and Laura Kramer, thank you both for joining us. listening to The Daily on Monocle 24, and regular listeners to this programme will be aware of a recurring theme of prevailing upon Monocle 24's riotously multinational staff as a sort of meta-commentary on passing news stories. Who can forget that occasion on which we tried, for reasons which made a sort of sense at the time, to teach a Brazilian to speak Welsh? Brazil features in a similar shoehorning today, with the World Health Organization surmising that Brazil has the planet's highest incidences of anxiety disorders. This revelation comes weeks after Finland, for the zillionth year running, was declared by the UN to be the world's happiest country. Well, joining me to discuss this counterintuitive proposition that the land of samba and carnival is a hotbed of disquiet, while a nation of frostbitten moose tenders who spend 11 months of the year in darkness is apparently heaven on earth, I'm joined by Fernando Augusto Pacheco of Brazil and Marcus Hippie of Finland. Hello, Andrew. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> uh, Fernando, first of all, your people do not strike, I'm sure, most foreigners as the anxious sort. We've been lying to you guys all the time, but actually I kind of and knew that. We should that. have led with this. I mean, that, there's <laughs> our headline. Brazil has been lying to us all along. We are very anxious. I have to agree wholeheartedly with, with what the World Health Organization have said. And there are plenty of reasons for that. There are the more serious ones. For example, Brazil is a violent country. Mm-hmm. So apparently people live in a permanent state of 
tension because anything could happen mm -hmm. at any time. There's another reason why as well. Um, social media. I think we are the country just behind Indonesia. Uh, they use mobiles the most. So we're always connected. And that brings anxiety because... Am I thin? Am I intelligent enough? Am I cool enough? Am I beautiful enough? Uh, and I think this creates uh, anxiety. And you know what? I think Brazilians are a bit like puppies. We all want to be loved. <laughs> We want to be loved permanently. And and I I, I I am I am anxious. I admit it. You know, I am like a Brazilian. It, it, I didn't it, it, know this was going on and you sit next to me. But Fernando, on another note, what does it feel like to sit next to someone whose country has just been ranked the happiest in the world for sixth time in a row? I mean, I should learn a few things with you, Marcus, but then it's different types of happiness. Because I wouldn't I would also say that Brazilians are happy, but we are I think, you know, you were mentioning, right, Marcus, that fin the Finnish people they're very content. We are not content, but we are are happy with our emotions like so for example i would tell you marcus i love you you know this kind of very strong uh, feelings but there's no sense of contentment there hey, marcus is it possible that your people are the world's happiest simply because you know they they don't know any better don't you? I, mean, <laughs> i mean we do travel sometimes are, are they aware that there are places where it's warm and sunny and yeah. That kind of thing? I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of what Fernando just said was important to remember that I agree with. I think Finnish people are content. Mm -hmm. We're not happy in the way that, you know, we go and dance in the rain. It's not that kind of happiness. <laughs> may have, we do dance in the rain. noticed oh, exactly. when you are sitting next to me in the office as well. And also, I think we are just quite I mean, content imagine, with I'm, our lives in Finland. It's cold outside, but we have quite warm inside. We have... Our CD players over there, so we can listen to some music, and you know, it's it's just, it's quite quiet, pleasant life, and there's no major drama over there, and that's mm. the key. I think I shouldn't say this, but I've been away for long enough, so maybe I'm allowed. I think Finland is sometimes a little bit boring, and I think that's one of the keys for happiness. I mean, yeah, as well. I'm, I'm, imagine Fernando, what what Finnish carnival would look like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I it, it, it would just be a bunch of people walking down the street. But you know, I, I have to say that when I've been watching carnival coverage, I think that happiness looks a little bit forced for me you know you see all these dancers and you see the looks in their face and i literally think that maybe they're not enjoying it quite as much as they would like the to, world to, to believe to be honest this is a suspicion i often have about people who are performatively enjoying themselves that they're kind of forcing it a little bit is that fair do you think fernando i think it's fair to say as well and and even you know marcus mentioned the word drama And if there's something that I would like to learn from the Finnish is maybe less drama. Because even when I talk with my family... Imagine a Finnish telenovela. Yes. That would be amazing. Yeah, because... It? <laughs> it, it, it would just be... It would just be a... It would be a soap opera about some people living in a house, re reading the newspaper, exactly. uh, you know... Someone would get drunk nice and fall off a boat on a lake <laughs> when fishing and drown. That's what happens there regularly. That's, oh my God. that's drama, the Finnish style. <laughs> so Midsummer. The, so the Finnish telenovela, the plot would be somebody falls off a boat and drowns. This gets reported back to their household and everybody goes, oh... That's, mm. yeah. I, we need to learn. I mean, to be honest, there's something quite glamorous about the drama as well, which is exciting. But actually, it's tiring. And that's why we're so anxious. It affects our health. I mean, and, and I said, even the levels of depression in Brazil, they're, they're becoming quite high. So, yeah, we're kind of hiding behind uh, this facade. I mean, I don't want to become 
too boring as well. But, you know, maybe we should become a little bit more boring. I mean, do you think genuinely, Marcus, that there is something to that, that Finland's secret? And I'm, you know, I'm a fan of Finland. I am an admirer of it. It is a, it's an orderly, well-run, functional country uh, and so forth. And if you would do something about the weather, I could imagine living there quite happily. It's interesting because when I was younger, I was desperate to leave Finland and go for holiday somewhere else where I thought it was more exciting. And the older I've been getting, the more pleasant the idea of just being (laughs) in Finland has got. I think that's the quality of life. Everything works well. And there's no none of that major drama you just mentioned. Everything works. And it's just quite pleasant. And when we talk about the keys to happiness in Finland, I was trying to think, you know, what what should Brazil learn from Finland? It's quite hard to compare countries. What Brazilian population is, what's mm. 240 million, and we are five and a half in Finland. But, you know, when we think about the Finnish history, I bet there's been more drama before. It was an extremely poor country. Mm-hmm. Until, until quite recently, Exactly. And I think the key has been education and guaranteeing equal opportunities for all the people, this equality leads into more stable society, likely less crime, and you can trust people around you more when you know that you are kind of in the same boat. And this is the feeling I don't even get here in the UK. But when I go to Finland, I always feel like we're kind of the same team. We kind of like look after each other. And it's a very cosy, very loving feeling. But this is what I want to come back to, because I think it is an interesting point you made earlier. And it's possibly a bit of a misnomer to refer to Finland as a happy country and instead refer to it as the world's most content country. Because I I think happiness and contentment are two quite different things in that my own view is that contentment is actually not that hard to attain. It's a, There's a mindset you need, perhaps that Finnish mindset, Sisu, whereas as happiness, Fernando, I think is a bit more of a, it's a bit more of a mirage. It's that thing that you always feel like you haven't quite got yet. Yes, that's a very good point, actually. And I think that's precisely what uh, Brazil have, because even though with our problems of anxiety and depression, we're always very optimistic when mm. they're when they're opposing who is optimistic in the world, even if we're in the horrible economic situation, Brazil is usually ranking very high. So, I mean, and I wonder, is that really bad? Actually, that's that's kind of nice to actually think that something nice will happen to your life. Uh, you know, that that's also good. Someone point. once said that that it's easy to be happy almost anywhere if you have a lot of money. But in Finland, everyone has got enough to actually have that certain level of mm. contentment. And I think that's very important to remember. But obviously, you know, I guess you know the answers already what the Finnish happiness is all about because you've been sitting next to me for years. <laughs> and you, you know what Finnish happiness looks, looks like or doesn't. I mean, what's your realistic assessment of this? Uh, No, as I was saying earlier, I I think there's a lot in what you say about the idea that the country is broadly functional, that the institutions are transparent, that things just sort of work. I mean, maybe it is also uh, a a function of getting older, and I, I... increasingly recognize the wisdom in it's an H.L. Mencken aphorism where he just said the older I get the more I realize that what I crave most in all things from adultery to zoology is competence Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I do understand this very well and and do the Finnish want to be loved by everyone because that's the thing that I want to to love and to be loved at the mm, same time it's it's too much I think we are not quite as obsessed as you make it sound like you Brazilians are but definitely we want to be loved by the international community and I think it's interesting that what I find quite sweet about Finland and Finnish media is that whenever Finland is mentioned somewhere, 
that always makes news. It's always <laughs> Finland's been mentioned on CNN. But that's a, that's a, and that's people a, are so excited. That's a small country thing, though, right? Absolutely. But yeah, I think that reveals that we want to be loved. Marcus Hippie and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. And finally, on today's show, Henry Ree Sheridan and his latest letter from New York City. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, hasn't officially announced he's running for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. But he may as well have, because he's doing everything a Republican presidential hopeful in 2023 should be doing. He's published an autobiography whose title, The Courage to be Free, is printed on its cover in a serious-looking font above a picture of DeSantis standing in front of an American flag. He's planned a tour with stops in three early presidential primary states. And he's taken over Disney World. What's the big idea? To be fair, that last one isn't part of the traditional Republican primary playbook. But DeSantis has made it part of his. On Monday, he signed a bill that gave him full control of the board that oversees Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Why has DeSantis done this? It seems to be retaliation for Disney's criticism of one of the most controversial bills he signed as governor. The Parental Rights in Education Act prohibits classroom instruction and discussion about sexual orientation and gender identity in certain elementary school grades. Harshly criticised by gay rights activists and many teachers, the act is often referred to by critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Despite internal pressure, Disney was slow to criticise the bill, but its then-CEO, Bob Chapek, did eventually speak out against it last year. Why, though, does anyone care about Disney's opinion on the matter? One reason is that because of Disney World, Disney is Florida's largest private employer and wields enormous power in the state. A staggering 80,000 Floridians work for the company. Disney has also, for 56 years, controlled the nearly 25,000-acre self-governing zone Disney World is built on. Until recently, the area was known as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Its establishment as an autonomous zone was instrumental to Disney's decision to build its theme park near Orlando in the 1960s. Walt Disney and his brother, Roy, wanted to build Disney World with minimal government oversight. They agreed to fund the construction of major infrastructure, alleviating the tax burden that would have been placed on residents of the area. They also dangled carrots in front of Florida's government, including a proposed development called Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Epcot was to be a futuristic planned city in which real people would live according to innovative social design principles. The showcasing and testing of new ideas and concepts for urban living within Epcot was one of the main rationales Disney gave for needing autonomy within the borders of Disney World. Disney's lobbying effort was successful. The only areas where the district had to submit to the county and state would be property taxes and elevator inspections. But the Epcot project was abandoned and the site was incorporated into the rest of the amusement park without a single groundbreaking social experiment being conducted. 
Over the past 56 years, Disney has saved millions of dollars from Disney World's tax-exempt, self-governing status and enjoyed the power to build basically whatever it wants without oversight. Historically, the five-member board that governs the Reedy Creek Improvement District has been effectively hand-picked by Disney since its establishment. But now DeSantis is taking over the board. His rationale for doing so is to make Disney World accountable to the public. When he signed the bill, he made a triumphant announcement. The corporate kingdom finally comes to an end. But Disney World is going to keep its special tax status. And no one really thinks the dispute is anything other than a proxy battle in the broader culture war DeSantis is such an enthusiastic participant in. In short, DeSantis is doing a justifiable thing for the worst possible reasons. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Laura Kramer and Tom Webb, also Marco Sippi and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantu, and our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>